You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Bruce, it's really cool to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Ledge, really appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be here. So would you mind giving a, just a two or three minute background story of yourself and your work, just so we can jump off, the audience can get to know you a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Ledge, I've been in the, uh, in the tech space since uh, about 1987. Uh, I actually had a, a programming job while I was a senior in college that far back. Uh, so my, uh, my uh, career spans all those decades uh, in between, including a, a stint in the U.S. Air Force as an accounting and finance systems officer, um, some time with uh, Accenture, uh, on a number of uh, defense and uh, tax uh, projects uh, from a consulting standpoint. Uh, from there, spent uh, a good amount of time in the ERPE uh, startup uh, space with uh, Mink Software and Pivot Point, both as a, a product manager uh, and as uh, head of um, the pre-sales uh, solution architect uh, function uh, at those companies. Um, did that until the mid mid to late 90s uh, and then went up to the enterprise level with uh, JD Edwards and Numetrics and uh, earned my supply chain chops and uh, began to work uh, global strategic accounts uh, from a pre-sales and total value management uh, perspective. With a couple of partners out of uh, JD Edwards, uh, I founded my own company, uh, Stratoscope, uh, back in uh, 2001 and uh, ran that for about 11 years until we sold. That was a, uh, a market intelligence uh, software company. Uh, we did a lot of work with Hewlett Packard, Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, uh, a lot of big names uh, in the space, and uh, ended up selling that IP to the Savo Group, a sales enablement uh, company back in uh, 2011. Uh, from there, I, uh, I ran the... Um, uh, client success practice at Bulldog Solutions, a, a B2B demand gen agency out of Texas, and spent the last uh, five years as the chief technology officer for serious decisions uh, up through this past uh, summer leading up to their recent purchase by Forrester. I have since joined uh, Hive9 as uh, chief strategy officer. Uh, interesting uh, tidbit about Hive9 is that uh, I am... Um, while working for Bulldog, where Darren Hicks, our current CEO, was then the CEO at Bulldog, uh, right before I left to go to Serious Decisions, I handed him uh, a 50-page 
design document and said, you know, you guys really ought to go build this. Uh, and that, that design document is actually the genesis of uh, Hive 9. So even though I've just joined them in the last six months, uh, I've been kind of a friend of the company throughout uh, their history. And uh, I'm really excited to take something that was my own idea uh, to, to market and, and help grow this company. So it's been an exciting run. That's that's a great story. Gosh, you've worn a lot of hats there. You know, I I always I, I like to ask, you know, I, I don't have as much tenure as you, you know, so geez, you know, sort of core lessons. I mean, you know, you're you're out there, you've worn most of the functional hats and uh, you've seen a lot of stuff, you know, since you got started. Just reactions on on career development, you know, for for people maybe who are halfway there. You know, what what do you think is valuable? So I think uh, spending time with the customer, my gosh, it's, it's the most valuable thing you can imagine. Um, when I first got uh, started with, this, with the startup ERP companies, I was a pre-sales consultant and uh, nobody was using me. I was 25 years old. I can't imagine why. Uh, and I, I started putting up notices around the office uh, regarding my availab- availability and my preparedness to, to do the demonstrations and that, uh, that self-promotion started to get me in front of clients. And then when we started to win the deals that I was demonstrating on, uh, my calendar started to get booked up really heavily. Uh, I got to talk to in- incredible uh, senior people uh, in the ERP space uh, all throughout the Northeast in the high tech and, uh, and uh, um, fine, uh, fi- the uh, manu- high tech manufacturing space, uh, basically. Um, so that was really, really uh, probably the most valuable thing early in my career was to have interviewed people at almost 500 companies in a, in a five-year span. And that cross-industry knowledge and working for a startup where ERP packages, as you know, even back in the day, had 20, 25 modules to them. Well, at a big company like an SAP, you'd have the guy come in to do the finance demo, somebody else come in to do the uh, cost accounting somebody else come in to do the manufacturing. I had the opportunity at a startup to do the whole thing. That led to me really coming to understand the full end-to-end business processes of most organizations. That foundationally put me in a really good position for the rest of my career. So I think early on, the more time you can spend with the customer, the more time you can spend really holistically uh, learning how businesses work, the more value you can yeah, absolutely. And we hear that all the time, you know, that the, the biggest thing now is that um, engineers like it or not are being thrust into, you know, sort of that that customer facing role. And, you know, you build it, you support it or, you know, operations standpoint or, you know, even third tier support. But you're, you're going to touch the customer. And and there's the at the same time, there's this coalescing product and engineering function where more and more of that, you know, kind of lives under the same place. And uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. And and if you listen to the podcast, you know, you're going to hear every one of the tech leaders that I talk to just talk about, you know, it's, it's not about the technology. It's about the people skills and the soft skills, which is a little scary sometimes, you know, if that's not the area, you know, that you, you come from, but I, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, how about, how about some thoughts around, you know, sort of how to best deal with customers, you know, when you are first sitting in that developer seat? 
I think the most important thing you can do is listen and ask questions. Uh, it's no one expects you to get it right just because you had one meeting with them and they explained what they were looking for. Number one, it's hard for them to articulate what they're looking for. So you've got to ask questions from 90 different angles to really kind of triangulate on this is what they're looking for. And then as soon as you think you've got what they're looking for, you've got to straw man something together and bring it right back to them and get feedback on, you know, if we do it this way, if we provide you with this type of process flow, this type of user experience, is that going to meet your needs? Punch holes in it. Give them high fidelity mockups after that and really iterate with the client and really uh, come to understand their pain and their point of view uh, on what they're looking for. Uh, one of the pitfalls to avoid is very often the client will come to you with what they perceive is the solution to the problem. Now, in, in most cases, they don't have any design background, any developer experience or anything that, that puts them in a position uh, to be able to do this design for you. You've got to listen and find the need within the solution and solve for the need. And very often you can bring a more elegant, more efficient, more effective solution to the table if you can read through what they're telling you to get to the need. And from a, you know, I can tell you from a sales perspective, I'm sure you, you know this, that the more you do that in that empathetic and, you know, active listening kind of way, when you show them the thing that you actually made, they're going to say, yeah, that, that's exactly what I wanted. Like, that's what I meant. You can make them think that it's, it's sort of like their idea, right? That you did, did change it, didn't try to force down their throat your way of doing it. And that level of shared understanding really builds that relationship rapport from the ground up. Absolutely. I mean, they're looking for you to come to the table and, and having actually understood their needs, putting together something that uh, openly expresses how it uh, addresses those needs. And it doesn't have to be all bells and whistles. It can be very clean, very straightforward, gets the job done. And a lot of times they'll appreciate that. People, um, and this I found this out, this is a really tough one for, I think, a lot of developers. Uh, and that is that your customer does not want you to keep coming to them with options. You are the expert. They don't want to answer question after question around choices. They're happy to answer question after question around needs, but they want you to lead them. They want you to come in with a recommendation. So don't be afraid to say, I think we should do it this way and here's why, but tie it back to their needs so that you really are addressing it. Um, a lot of people I find, they want to just keep coming back with more questions or I've got you seven options for a user interface. You pick which one you want to do. They don't know how to make that choice. You've got to really help people and, and lead them through some of these choices. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. I can echo that too. Is some of the advice that, that we often have to give, you know, to our, our freelancers with with their clients is, um, you know, it's rarely more valuable to have many choices. And in fact, you know, uh, come with an A and a B and a pros and cons list, and you're going to do a lot better than if you have all the possible things. Because you're right, there's an analysis paralysis and and this fear of uh, you really perpetuate this idea that, you know, geez, I, I don't speak this tech thing and, and this guy doesn't or gal doesn't understand me. And it's it's better 
to really come from a, a binary standpoint is to make their life easier. And that's the value you can help bring because they're going to assume you already filtered out like the bottom eight solutions. Here are the top two. And here's some pros and cons on, on what you should use. Totally agree with that, that feedback. And it's good to hear that that, you know, sort of endures through the, the sales engineering seat and, and the customer seat that, that you've been in. So that, that's an uh, interesting point you bring about too, though. When you, there, there's additional risk in bringing five or six options to the table in that your heart is only in at most the first two to begin with. Uh, and the lack of heart in the other three or four can really show through across the whole group. And it clouds what you brought to the table in terms of your primary uh, solution that you're focused on. Uh, and because it, it's really hard for anybody to fall in love with, uh, you know, six iterations of their own uh, take on a problem. And uh, and I think that can really hurt you if you're bringing too many to the table. So you've seen a lot of organizations you've been part of, you know, and, and led engineering organizations, software organizations. You know, I wonder, um, you know, from the hiring side, what have you seen to be really successful to, to bring in and retain the best people? So I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, small, uh, highly um, skilled teams. So I would rather have two full stack developers than uh, a, a team of seven or eight jack, uh, specialists. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather give two guys the reins, have one guy, you know, primarily focus on business rules through UX and the other guy overlap on business rules down through the data the database and DevOps layer uh, and have those two guys really, you know, knock out an incredible amount of work. They develop a bond together. They develop a working relationship. And um, I just think that the amount of code you can get out of small teams uh, outweighs all of the communication headaches and so forth of, of going down the road of a, a larger uh, split apart team. I know it's the world of specialization, but uh, two full stacks can get a ton of work done. It makes me think of, uh, are you a, a proponent of sort of the, the mythical man month type of thinking that, you know, more, more people, more problems? Yeah, absolutely. Especially on the communication front. Uh, you know, there's so much that has to go on in terms of communication. The more you can build a stable team that is going to stay together small group, they will outperform uh, uh, from a productivity standpoint, uh, bigger groups uh, every day of the week. And you've also worn the product manager hat, you said. So I imagine that had involvement with quite a larger group of stakeholders, right? So, you know, as, as the organization grows, the number of stakeholders grows, and you, you might be able to hold your dev team to, to small um, headcount, but how do you deal with the the scaling nature of you know sort of multiple stakeholders and and um, you know business folks that are trying to put input into the product? So how do you control that in a scalable way? Well, my my product manager time is a bit dated, so we're actually going back to the uh, the mid '90s, early '90s, in fact, uh, on that. So we're not talking agile at this point. Uh, we're not talking a, a full blown you know UX function. We're in we're not even in a graphical interface at that point. So really, it was a big, old-fashioned, six-month waterfall uh, where you know most of my work was done in the six months prior to the six months of development. So that's when I'm meeting with clients, 
developing, you know, massive functional and then technical specifications uh, that are going to be delivered to a development team that then takes it uh, through the next, it's old fashioned code development at that point. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, that still school. exists. I mean, oh, yeah, still <laughs> plenty of people trying to do that out there. And, and to be fair, you know, I think, we we've swung the pendulum, you know, so far in the agile direction that there are times when you, you know, you might go back to some of those practices and say, did, did we throw the baby out with the back bathwater? Um, and yet, you know, I'm, I'm sure now like every organization you come in contact with is, is, is going to be agile from a product development perspective. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, I haven't had a lot of experience maybe in both. Um, do you see any areas that, that maybe agile doesn't always fit the bill. What well, most people don't know what the hell they're doing with agile. That's that's one of the uh, problems with it. Is uh, I've I've, look, I've talked to offshore guys who are, are looking at uh, six week sprints, and I'm like, there's there's no there's no team on the planet that is good enough to support a six week sprint. No nobody is that good at coding. And having you know really to come to grips with what uh, Agile is about uh, and seeing people de delay uh, a sprint and, and, and really not understand how to run both a daily scrum and a sprint schedule and how to adhere to it and how to understand how to deal with scope creep and how to move uh, split items and move them into a subsequent sprint to capture the scope creep and that kind of stuff. There's so many people out there that are simply trying to do fast waterfall that, um, you know, you got to really make sure before you try to tackle Agile that you've got a, an actual uh, project manager, a PMO, who is a scrum master and has been certified in it. And you've got to make sure that the developers are trained and understand how a sprint actually works or you're going to run into all kinds of problems. So, yeah, Agile is not something you can just say, we're going to switch to Agile from Waterfall and let's go do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, great, great point. And, and it's, you, you see this particularly on the enterprise, it's easy to say all those words. It's not easy to do in practice. So, you know, that's, I think the elegance of agile is that it's easy to say. Uh, that doesn't mean it's easy to do. And particularly when you already have, you know, so your old habits. Um, and I would say that in addition to that, you need to have a organization and, and leadership, you know, sort of outside the engineering function, which fully supports agile because all your business stakeholders, you know, way down on the left side of that, that product uh, development line, they really need to understand that too, that they're going to experience things in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. Not everything is going to work the way you expect it out of the gate because we're going to make continuous uh, improvements on it. Uh, so that's, that's something on the stakeholder side that they've become accustomed to you know, a long wait period, but a completely, you know, polished and wrapped up uh, project. But they're going to be involved all the way along now. So they're going to see some ugly stuff along the way uh, that is absolutely going to get corrected by the time frame they would have seen it. Uh, but that can be difficult for them. And the other thing is to, to have a development manager come to you and say, the two-week sprints are killing us. We got we to gotta go to three-week. And then turn around and tell them, no, if the two-week sprint is killing you, we got to go to one week. And it's that fundamental understanding of if it takes, if, if I can't get the work done in two weeks, it's because the blocks of work are not well enough to find they they were too big. So we got to shorten the sprint, shorten the scope 
and get you to the point where you can get a week's worth of work done in a week, on time, good quality, on schedule. And then we can talk about going back to two weeks. But if anybody doing a three-week sprint should only be doing it if it's because they're so good at one- and two-week sprints that uh, they can now handle it. I love that. That's great. I'm going to use that one. So I want to give you a chance before we have to wrap. Uh, tell us about Hive9 and uh, you know some of the, the product and the technology that, that you helped design there and um, what you're doing in the marketplace. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm real excited about Hive9 because uh, I love the, the business aspects of what Hive9 is all about. Uh, as you know, you know, there's three or 4,000 companies now in the MarTech stack space uh, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And what we found is that there's very little oversight to all the things that are happening as uh, marketing activities move through the tech stack. So what we've done is we've built an application that really looks at marketing planning, marketing financial management, and marketing performance management as a wrapper around all those execution functions. So it, it thinks uh, the, the marketing cycle starts in Hive9 where you build the plan, uh, you put in your goals and strategy, and uh, then you feed it out to finance and get it funded from a budget perspective. And then what we do is we connect after that to all your execution systems. So we start pulling in the performance data from a Salesforce.com or an Adobe Analytics or Eloqua or Marketo, all those types of places, and pull all that actual data back in so that we can then uh, monitor and analyze and get predictive around whether or not the plan is going to meet the goals that it's set out to, um, to uh, accomplish. And if it's not going to meet those goals, it's got to give me some prescriptive uh, uh, advice as to what I should do, uh, what I should change in the plan to make that happen. And then have any of those changes immediately ripple down into the execution system, shut off that campaign, turn on this one, give more funding to that paid media. Uh, so it's really this uh, management layer that's been missing that surrounds all those other pieces of the MarTech stack that is going to help a, a CMO or a leadership team uh, manage all of that uh, program spend that they have, which is typically about 50% of the marketing budget. And how big of an organization is is the target customer for Hive9? You know, it, it doesn't sound like something that a startup could put in play. No, if you can, if you can manage your, your marketing tactics for the year on a 100-line uh, spreadsheet, you, you don't need us. Um, so it is absolutely a complexity play. Uh, we are focused on organizations that are about a billion in revenue and up. Uh, and uh, typically, they're, they're dealing with complexity, and it's really frustrating for them. I, I, I told you I was in uh, London this week uh, working with a company right now that's uh, you know managing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of marketing spend uh, across uh, the world in 30 different countries with 50 to 60 different uh, marketing managers, uh, all trying to work in independent spreadsheets and tie that stuff all back together on a monthly basis and getting uh, reports from uh, accounting that they have to manually input uh, into their spreadsheets to try to reconcile everything. And that's the, that's a real picture of a real story of one big company after another around the world. Uh, so that's the, that's the problem we're trying to solve. And it's exciting to be in that space and help these people that really, in a lot of cases, uh, we're doing a little bit of education on the front end. 
lot of people don't know that there's anything other than Excel that can help solve this kind of problem. <laughs> Everybody loves this except Microsoft, I guess. So, well, <laughs> Bruce, um, we're never, never going to supplant Excel. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Let's take the stuff out of there that most people can't handle. Absolutely. Well, it's exciting. Uh, best of luck on the current business trip, and and we look forward to to keeping eyes on on Hive Nine. Love what you guys are doing, and Bruce, thanks for uh, sharing insights today. Thanks so much, Lech. Hey, this was great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.